0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat, and today we're joined by Sam Polk, the CEO and co-founder of Every Table. Sam, thanks for having us in your humble abode here in this garage. I love the startup feeling that you know there is in here.
1: Yeah. Thanks for coming guys. And (laughs) thanks for having me.
0: I love it. Well, we'll kick it off with learning a little bit about your backstory. I want people to know about what you were like as a kid and, you know, what you enjoyed. So talk to us. We call it the early days. People make fun of us at this point because we talk a lot about the early days, but talk to us a little bit about, you know, what you were like as a kid, you know, before you were 10 years old, even.
1: Oh my gosh. Um, I was, uh, I mean, I was pretty nerdy, you know, I was, I was a smart guy. Um, I was a little bit overweight. All my family sort of struggled with food stuff. Um, and I, you know, I would say I like, you know, I I had trouble fitting in. I I would say that with, you know, my sort of early days were not, you know, a smooth sailing. I'd put it that way. Why is that? Uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's sort of hard to explain, but I came from a family that, you know, you know, very well-intentioned parents, I would put it that way, but also parents that sort of like had trouble sort of existing in the world. So there was a lot of sort of like chaos in my house and there was like, you know, you know, it was almost like things in my house were like, you know, messy and, you know, people didn't dress well and they weren't clean. And so I basically had this experience where I would like go out into the world, go out into school And it was like running into a buzzsaw because like, you know, I came from a family that sort of like didn't sort of prepare me
2: for sort of how to exist in the world basically. And and where do you think that came from? Like, was it something that maybe they got from their parents? Yeah, they, they, you know, that's a good,
1: that's a good question. Like my mom's sort of, you know, parents were, you know, had, had a lot of sort of issues. And so she sort of dealt with that, you know, she had a tough childhood and then so did my dad, you know? And so it's like, you can almost see it like they're, they're getting better every generation, but they definitely came from sort of like crazy backgrounds. And so, you know, they were a sort of, you know, good match for each other in that way. And then, you know, raising kids was like, you know, not a great experience.
2: basically. Mm. Yeah. And out of curiosity, what did, what did your parents do for a living?
1: My mom was a nurse practitioner. Um, and then my dad was sort of this, you know, sort of long sort of journeyman sort of story where he started out as a newspaper reporter. Then he came out here to direct movies to go to AFI, Mm -hmm. but sort of never graduated. And then started this series of like, you know, business and sales sort of jobs that never really worked. Um, And then he finally started like his own PR company. And that was like semi-successful. And then he was hired by one of his – you know, clients and that became like a big technology company. So sort of at the end of his like very difficult story, he ended up sort of making it big after, you know, after we left for college. But, you know, growing up, it was always like, you know, no cable, no, you know, electricity getting turned off, like
0: always at the, you know, edge basically. Right. You know, it's funny you say this and not funny in the comedic way, but like. I think it's a very relatable sort of story I think a lot more people have experienced this than perhaps they talk about you know and I mean I don't want to say that I experienced it to maybe the same level but there were bits and pieces of what you were saying that like you know resonate with me and I think it was more because my parents come from like they're immigrants right like they came here and they're trying to figure their life out not trying to like you know make things all pretty and neat like it's just all over the place because that's the only thing they can do like that's what they know, you know, they're not going to be like, oh, well, now that we know this, let's make this pretty, you know, you got to dress to the nines, you know, like, you know, it just, it wasn't that way. Like, right. You know, we were, you know, conservative, I guess is a good word. Like, you know, don't, don't use the TV too much. Don't use the lights, turn off the lights when you're not in that room type of situation, which are not bad things. Right. But then you kind of grow up with this different mindset. And then when you go to another friend's house and they're not doing that, you're like, wait, what's happening here? You know, like, that's not how it's supposed to be.
1: I mean, I had like my, I have a lot of empathy for sort of my parents because they were like, you know, struggling to make it work. They had four kids and, right. and, and so like the amount of stress, like financial stress they were under was crazy, but right. I know what you're talking about. Like I would go to, you know, friend's house. Like I remember going to this guy, Eamon Agajanian's house <laughs> and go. like beautiful house. The yeah. mom was like cooking beautiful food. Yeah. And I was just like, where am I? Like, <laughs> how come my house doesn't look like this, right you know? And so I, yeah.
0: and it's like, it's not a good thing to compare, but as a kid, that's the only thing, you know, like what to like to do, right? You're like, oh, I don't have this, and they're probably thinking, well, I don't have what Sam has, you know. Even though you're like not envying, you know, you, you,
1: you know, know pe- your life. you know, people envied us because we didn't have curfews, we didn't have right. stuff like that. And I do think that at the end of the day, like all of that stuff from my childhood definitely helped me as a founder because I was basically sort of like on my own. Without sort of like strong parental guidance from, you know, before
0: I can remember basically. That's a great transition because, you know, I feel like as a founder, you know, you just have no clue what you're doing most of the time. You know, you think you do and people depend on you to know, but then you're like, you know, we were talking to Jamie Schmidt the other day from Schmidt's Naturals. And, you know, apparently she had just written a book and one of the chapters was just say yes and then figure it out after. Right. And it's like. Sometimes I feel like our parents had that same mentality where like they didn't necessarily know how to parent because there's no like there's no rule book on how to be a parent, right? Not how to be a mom, how to be a dad, how to be a grandparent. You just have to like figure it, it, it it's out. It's interesting
2: though. To your point, I feel like it could go either way. Sometimes when you're too boxed in, it doesn't help you in the real world because you're kind of, again, boxed in. You're, you're not outside of the box thinking and – Maybe that creativity, or you're you're hesitant to put that out there and express yourself. But also on on the flip side, I feel like a lot of folks might rebel, and because of that rebelliousness, they could end up. uh, So it's like it's kind of weird. Like I feel like I I wonder if there's a direct correlation with it. But then then again, I could see how both sides could. Could play out. Well, I as definitely well.
1: can see how it can hurt you. Like even some of my yeah. brothers and sisters, like sort of like it almost feels like sort of like I don't want to say you know never recovered, but like struggle. You know, but for me, whatever. And it's not that I haven't struggled, but it's like you know, learning how to do everything on my own was like brutal and painful. But my my wife like still laughs at me now because like I have this sort of like totally independent streak that I'm like. Well, fuck it. I can't depend on anybody, so right. I'm gonna do it, and
0: nobody's gonna stop me. Basically, yeah. Mm. I love how we went deep so fast, and this is why we talk about the early days because it literally sets you up for the rest of your journey. Like, I don't care what you've done and how successful you've become later on. There's always a tie to the beginning, like always. I mean, things just always kind of you know connect eventually. But I, I mean, I think me and Pat kind of feel the same way, where you know. We grew up, he grew up in an immigrant family as well, so you know, we're, you're know, just always trying to figure it out. You're always trying to play catch-up, right? Even when you're a founder, I'm sure like you were always like, oh, there's people doing it better than me or faster than me or whatever. But that's, it, just does, it shouldn't matter, and I think you kind of gained that perspective you know, later on in life. I doubt you were thinking like this at 10 years old or 15 years old. But I'm curious, when did you realize all this stuff? Like what you just told us, when did that process for you? It's is a good question. Like, I
1: remember once, um, I was probably like 14 and I was like driving in the car with my dad and he's, I don't even know what he said, but he said something. And like, for whatever reason, I was like, ah, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. You know what I mean? And it was like this moment where I was like, you know, my dad, I, w- I always looked up to him and I was like, fuck,
2: like, yeah,
1: I do not have sort of a good guide at this moment. And I, you know, I hope my dad's not listening to this. I have a lot of respect and love for him, but it's true, you know? And then later, like in my twenties, like, you know, going to college, you know, it, it was almost like, you know, all this stuff sort of like came out of me in some sense, like all the sort of like craziness. And so I got to college and I was on my own and it was like a total sort of implosion basically. Like, you know, my parents got divorced then I got kicked out off the wrestling team. I got kicked out of school um, drugs, you know, drinking, fighting, tons of fighting. And, you know, it was, and so it was like after that sort of craziness that I started like trying to figure it out and being like, what the fuck is going on? You right.
2: know, I'm curious though, like when you were in high school, perhaps before college, did you have an idea of what your like life was going to look like? What do you want, what you wanted to do for your career perhaps or your job or, Anything like that? No, I knew I wanted to be
1: successful and I wanted to sort of like make it in a way that sort of like my family hadn't and I didn't know what that looked like yet. And I remember when I saw it, like, so I was like, you know, I got into Columbia and it was like, you know, It was a surprise to everybody because my grades weren't that good. My test scores were good. But I sort of like worked so hard with the application getting in.
2: This is straight out of high school?
1: Straight out of high school. I was Columbia early decision. And that was a tie too. Like my dad had taken me on a business trip to New York and I like walked onto Columbia's campus and I was like, I want to go here. And that's, you know, that was sort of like changed the course of my life. And then... I remember I was dating this girl. So I you know, I came from sort of like lower middle class background, always scraping by. And Columbia was all full of these rich kids. And I started dating this girl from Harvard-Westlake. And she took me to her like family friend's house, you know, or brownstone. And it was like you could just see like what the life looked like right. of like the people who had made it and who had money and were in the – that sort of, he was like a senior partner at Simpson Thatcher, $2 million a year or something like that. And it was like, that was a moment where I was like, I want that. I I want that. And I've now made it, I realized that getting into Columbia gave me access to that in a way that, you
0: know, my family never had. Did you, did you want, I mean, like, I know you said you just want that, but like, did you want. It because of the material and what you saw or you wanted it more so because of the, the comfort perhaps or just the fact that you didn't have it?
1: It it, it was the, yeah, it, it, I mean, the money was, you know, motivating, but it, it was more the sort of like, you know, what life could look like if you were successful. You had a beautiful wife, beautiful house. It looked nothing like the house I grew up in. So much class, so much, and I was like, you know. That's it. That's what I want.
2: You know? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like once you get to college, how much uh you realize like how much it opens your eyes. I a similar experience with me. Like I wasn't a good student. I had to actually transfer, but walked onto the campus at USC, like I wanna go here. And that's exactly like I feel like it's like one of those things where once you put your mind to it, then it's like no one's gonna get in your way. Yeah. Like you know you you go out there, you figure out what you have to do. You fucking do it, and you get there, and that's it.
0: I think a part of it is you just have to see it because
2: you've never been exposed to it. Before. You have to see it, but you have to want it bad enough. But that's
0: yeah. what I, I agree with. That like
1: it's like you know that's why with now with my kids I'm so intentional of just showing them so many things right. because you never know what people are gonna stick right. on, but it can change your life like in a second. You might right. see a scientist and be like, "I want to do this." Right. And now you're curing cancer. Right. You know? See,
0: for me, that's like more like later in my adulthood after I met my you know my wife. Now it's like art, for example, like I had never been to museums or like, or even if I had gone, I never enjoyed it. And then like, now I'm like, oh wow, like this is something I really enjoy. Like I don't want to be art- an artist, you know, maybe I'll be a collector down the line or whatever, but it's like, it's a world that you've never been exposed to. So you know, how do you know you don't like something if you don't know what there is to not like or like, right? And I think Pat talks about this like in almost like every other podcast is like that exposure concept. And like, there's
2: one recurring theme that comes up <laughs> yeah, in a lot of our conversations. Yeah. It's uh it's exposure, right? Like being exposed to things or how being exposed to certain things at a young age plays a crucial role in the rest in the trajectory of your life because if you're not exposed to it you don't know what's possible or if that even exists for you to pursue that or engage with it
0: but if you grew up like how sam just described and kind of how like both of us grew up where you're just like scraping by i mean it's like it's no discredit to our parents i mean that's just the situation that they were dealt right like they gave us the opportunity to now think about this type of stuff and like not do that to the next generation but like not intentionally they didn't do it like on purpose where they're like nope we can't spend money here we can't travel there it's just like it was either you're going to travel or we're not going to eat for like three weeks you know it's like totally it's just it is what it is so you know realizing that i think that you know people need to work harder connect with other people be more exposed so that you don't run into the same issues generation after generation right just because you were kind of dealt that hand doesn't mean you have to keep that hand right like it's your choice now to get out of that situation and i feel like that's something that you've obviously done pretty well
1: well the the thing i'll say about that is like you know college i don't know what your guys experience with the college was like and what you know you know you saw from college about your opportunities but like you know so many people at columbia you know, saw the same things that I saw about like a Wall Street, you know, internship or a consulting internship or big law, and it was like, you know, it was this, it was almost like this like vulnerable moment for a kid where you're like about to go into the world and you're like, You know, I want to be successful. I don't know what that's going to look like. And then, you know, somebody shows you this picture of like, here's what a managing director's house (laughs) looks like. And then people just go into Wall Street because of that thing. And then they stay there their entire career. You know what I mean? And it's. it's What was your
2: major, by the way?
1: Uh, Well, I started off as an economics major, then I got kicked out. And then when I came back, I was like, look, you know, I just got to make it through. And so I always loved to read. So I was like, I'm going to be an English major. And then I just spent the
0: rest of college
1: just reading books. So So
0: talk to us about that. Why'd you get kicked out of Columbia?
1: I was, um, I'd basically, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, funny story. Well, not a funny story, but I was, you know, I was engaged in, let's call it a, drug dealing partnership with the guy that i live next to okay and then him and i sort of got in an argument and i ended up sort of burglarizing his apartment to get and then columbia found out about it and so they were like look you can either uh, confess to this or uh or or we're going to take it to the police so i was like okay and so then they I confess, you know, and then and so, and so I mean, then, to put it that way. You're, you're like like I the just, worst burglar. Like, <laughs> I'll just, yeah. you know, it's funny too. Yeah, that's true. It was like, and, and then, um, and then they, and then they basically, you know, yeah, kicked me out for uh, it was a semester, and it could have been longer, but they let me back in basically. And it is, you know, that's one of the things I do think about when I think about sort of like, you know, the, the neighborhoods that we work in is like how much of my life is attributed to the fact that like I was part of this institution that protected kids from making big mistakes you Mm. know what i mean like they kicked me out but they also you know it was in their interest for me to graduate
0: right you know Mm. see for me you know college i I didn't burglarize anything or deal drugs or even do drugs uh i was like a kind of a goody two-shoes for sure but i realized that like i was questioning everything in like education i think pat had the same experience i think we still do um And I was just like, why do I need to learn this? Like, I'm not going to use like, you know, 99% of this stuff. Like, and so how can I go out and learn on my own? So for me, like I had, because I was like, an Armenian transfer student. I commuted to school. Like, I always say I was shafted on, like, three different things. Like, no one knew what Armenians were, really. Commuters, like, you're spending two hours driving to school and you're a transfer, so you didn't really start off your school year, like, your, you know, education in college from a freshman year into dorms and whatnot. And so, for me, I was just spending time just networking with people there, just talking to them and talking about their experiences. I didn't even know what investment banking was, frankly. Like, you know, and then by senior year, everybody's, you know, interviewing for an investment banking job. So, for me, I was just trying to spend time, like getting exposed to different people, to different cultures. I went to Armenian school for 11 years. I had never met a black person or an Indian person or anything for that matter. You know, like I was so limited, like know, I just like my culture, which I love, you know, don't get me wrong, but that's all I knew. I was really safe and, you know, comfortable being like an Armenian kid in LA. Like that was it. But then when you start hearing and expose and are exposed to different people and their ways of life and their hardships, and now you start thinking like, Wow. Look at all the problems there are to solve, right? Which means there's a lot of opportunity. Why do I have to pigeonhole myself into one thing? And so that obviously creates a little bit of confusion in your head as a young kid of like, what am I going to do? I like a lot of things. I want to be exposed to a lot of things. What's my path? Right. Like, and that it's confusing for it, sure.
1: Well, And it's also like, I think as a kid, I, and this is especially true now, but I didn't understand like how, how much different opportunities there was to do sort of whatever. So it was like, people would be like, you know, follow your passion. And I'd be like, well, is my passion like accounting or being a doctor? <laughs> like those don't seem like being a lawyer, like, yeah. you know, and so that's why like, you know you know, trading was like, you know, I I saw a trading floor and basically these guys were just like, basically that's what they do is they play basically a video game for their entire life. And that's sort of what it is. And I was like, this looks fucking
2: awesome. (laughs) Were you, were were you like into like talking about passions? Were you into video games or?
1: I wasn't a video game guy. Um, but I was an, you know, I was like I wrestled at Columbia for a while and I, I was very, very competitive. And so there was, that was the thing about wall street where it was like. It was just a, it was like a competition of the mind basically.
0: So you ended up trading? Yeah, I went to, uh,
1: you know, after I got an internship at CSFB, Credit Suisse, and then went to, after college, got a full-time job at Bank of America and traded bonds and credit derivatives. And then I moved to trade distressed, which is like companies in and around bankruptcy and then went to a hedge fund and was basically the senior, you know, distressed trader of, you know, one of the top 20 hedge funds.
0: How long did you do that? The total
1: career was like eight years.
0: Wow. And did you enjoy it? I loved it. Like, like
1: like, I mean, it it is like, you know, in terms of, you know, the actual job itself, there's nothing sort of more fun as far as I'm concerned. It's like, you know, your job is to like learn about companies and industries, which I think is pretty interesting. And then also figure out what securities there, you know, they have figure out the prices of those And then put on these huge bets, you know, and like you know And it's
0: not your money.
1: I mean it's that that's true. I'm not worried about it, but it is like you live and die by that because you know, Wall Street is all about your bonus. And so your bonus is, you know, depends on how you do that year.
2: Yeah. And a lot of people might have heard a lot of things about Wall Street and how it is, but what's something that maybe people don't know about it? That I you, think the
1: you, thing, the, the biggest misconception. So there's like investment banking, which is crazy hours, but like when I, when I tell people I left Wall Street, they were like, "Oh, it's too stressful, too." <laughs> and I was like, "You don't even understand what my job was like. Like at the hedge fund, I would come in at the morning at seven and be in sort of like a quiet room all day. Sometimes I would go into like a private room and just read, right." And then, you know, I would leave it like five, you know? And it was like, it was, it was a great job. Like, you know.
0: And Sam, this is post 9-11, I assume?
1: Yeah. 9-11 I was in, I was at Columbia.
0: Yeah. yeah. So you, you spent almost, what, 12 years in New York? Yeah, that's right. 13 years. How, how was that experience like overall? I mean, there's a, there's a Joan Didion sort of short
1: story about, or a essay about sort of like how you spend your twenties in New York and then, you know, in your thirties you leave. And that's what it was for me. Like, I felt like I was in like the center of, I felt like I was in a movie basically like the center of finance at some of the top financial institutions in the world, like competing on wall street. It was like, I felt like I'd made it, you know, into like the big leagues basically.
2: And And, did did you, and did you think you're going to spend your entire career like on wall street? I, I
1: sure did. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was like, it was sort of like what, what I'd said is like, you know, I made it use leveraged Columbia to get into wall street and then made it, you know, close to the heights of wall street with this, you know, career path in front of me that, you know, a lot of people would envy, basically. And and know.
2: I'm assuming, like, a lot of people, maybe your peers in those positions weren't leaving at that point because they were like, well, Nobody what am I going to do?
1: Yeah, yeah, no. I no, mean, Wall Street had, like, a thing where, like, people left in the first two years where they were like, oh, this isn't for me. But then the people that then stayed, like, all of my friends are still doing the same exact thing, yeah. you know, and making, you know, a lot of money, you
2: know? Yeah.
0: Did you feel like you were successful at that point, like, financially?
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, I, I was... I, I, you know, the thing about Wall Street is, you know, you, you, wh- wherever you are, there's somebody rich, richer than you, like literally sitting right next to you. Right. So you always have that feeling. But, you know, I went very quickly from, you know, my, you know, first year was like $55,000 a year and a $40,000 bonus to like, you know, million dollar, you know, and then multi million dollar bonuses. Wow. You know?
0: And so why'd you not stick it through? Like, I mean, what was that moment when you said,
1: Okay, I'm done. You know, I was so I was it, it, it was like this gradual sort of like disillusionment in some sense where, you know, it, it, I I ended up getting to this hedge fund and so the the great thing about that was like I was literally working with the two billionaire founders and so it was like it was almost like you know I got a peek behind the curtain and it was you know they happened to be sort of not the greatest guys in the world but um but I could sort of see what their life was like. And so I was like, okay, that's what the, the height of success on wall street looks like, you know? And I was like, and then, and then I, and then I started just like being like getting a sense of sort of the culture. And there was something like, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant, but there was something that was so sort of empty about it. Like the whole thing was about making money. And I, you know, one of the things I've learned in my life is that I'm sort of good at sort of making money and creating you know income and wealth, but that was not
2: what you did know. you see though like when you you know peeked behind the curtains like specifically, was there something that you saw that you realized it's all it's, it was all about money like there was it like was it personal lives in shambles or like they didn't care about their kids no, or like anything well, specific it
1: wasn't that i mean there was there was you know I had two billionaires and one was like a really nice guy, really smart, and then one was just like a complete like uh, caricature of like the, all the things you'd hate on wall Street basically and so but i don't think it's fair to sort of like say he was like you know wall street but it was more the sort of day to day like you know what really did it for me and i was like very i would say like moralistic at the time but it was during the crash of 08 and 09 mm-hmm. and all of these you know houses were getting foreclosed and people were getting fired and wall street was like like the people i would talk to on a day to day basis were very up in arms about how they were not going to get their bonus this year and da 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 and there was something about it that I, I, to be honest, I found like distasteful. I was like, "This is supposed to be a sort of like eat what you kill, total meritocracy, and and Wall Street is completely fucked up, and all these banks should be going bankrupt, and then all the all the traders are pissed off that they're not getting another bonus." And I was like, "What are we doing here? Like, what is if there's no point to the game? If you still want to get paid when you fail at the game, what's the competition basically?"
0: Mm-hmm. Sam, I'm curious. You know, you talk about earlier on how like, you know, life at home was kind of just like all over the place, messy, you're an overweight kid. Did that change when you went to New York?
1: Yeah, my, my whole life was sort of like, you know, creating a sort of life and a, and a sort of way of living in the world sort of from scratch. Hmm. So it was like. Yeah, you know, that's what I try to do with my kids is the opposite of that is like teach them how to behave in the world so they don't have to do what I had to do. But like, I had to figure out how to dress properly and how to groom and how to like, you know, be polite and do it. And so, you know, when I was on wall street, it was like, I had then sort of like created that life and I had like a beautiful apartment. I dressed well, I did it, you know, I was in good shape. I was, you know, so it was like, you know, it was a big achievement for me.
0: Mm.
2: So um, I'm assuming did you leave Wall Street after the crash?
1: Yeah, I left so crash was oh eight and oh nine, and then I stayed and got my bonus at the end of 09, hmm. and so left in January 2010.
2: Okay. And and what did you leave to do?
1: I I, I just left it behind. Like hmm. I was like I was like, look, you know, I I don't want to do this. And I was, you know, pissed off at my bosses because I didn't think my bonus was big enough. And but I was also You know, I just, I just sort of, I knew that I wanted something different, but I had no idea what it was. And so I left and then I, you know, moved back to Los Angeles. I was dating a woman who then became my wife and she was a a resident or she was graduating medical school. So got her residency out in LA. And so we moved back to LA and then I like had basically like spent like a year doing like volunteer work and doing nothing basically.
2: Hmm. So you were that like pissed off at wall street that you're just like, I'm just going to leave without any plan to, to be honest. Like there
1: was like in retrospect, it was, you know, it's almost like in retrospect, it all makes sense. And I'm actually glad it all happened, but there was definitely some self-sabotage sort of elements to it where it's like, I left a lot of money on the table that I could have negotiated for more or whatever, but I was just so, and sometimes I think that I needed that anger to get out of it because like You know, golden handcuffs on Wall Street is really true. And like, you know, for years afterwards, because I ended up writing this op-ed that got published on the front page of the Sunday Review of the New York Times about leaving Wall Street and that like went totally viral. And so for years I would get emails from all these Wall Street guys that would be like – I'm really thinking of leaving. I'm pretty unhappy. Can you talk to me about doing it? And then, and, and, and you know, in the beginning I would be like, yeah, I'll definitely talk to you. Da, da, da. And what I found over time, and this may sound, but it's like, they just never left. They, you know, they, they just didn't leave basically.
0: I mean, it, it's cause you're talking about multi-million-dollar bonuses. I mean, like that's not easy to leave. Like you, like you said, you've made it. Why would you let go of just a consistent million dollar just income where you can literally do anything you want, go buy art, go sail the seas, like whatever you could, you could do everything at that point. I mean, you don't need to be a billionaire in America to live the, you know, wealthy life, you know, if you want to call that. So I don't blame those guys or, yeah. or, or girls. It's like, you know, a lot of them probably came from a similar background or perhaps not. And they're just like, why would we leave this? I mean, like I, c- I could imagine myself in that position, you know, you're like, I think I could do more. with my life i could probably help a lot more people make a bigger impact but like two million dollars like i don't know if i mean that's a lot of impact you could make eventually as a philanthropist i mean it's true and it's like there's a small number of seats and once you get those seats you don't want to let it go so did you feel like you were retired, like for a few years when you came back to LA?
1: I did. And I had like, you know, I sort of, you know, I was like, like, I've got enough money in the bank that I don't want, you know, if I just, you know, spend a hundred thousand dollars a year, it'll take me 20 years, whatever, you know, like I, I, I'm not worried about running out of money. Um, and I basically thought I would never sort of think about making money again. And in fact, it was almost like I went to the complete opposite, like. You know, it's funny, like I wrote a book and, you know, and now it's, you know, six years since I published that book and it's 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 sort of horrifying in some sense because that book sort of like captured exactly where I was at the time and now I'm sort of six years older and I've mellowed in a lot of ways, do you know what I mean? But I was so like anti-wall street and so pissed off right and so so i like i ended up you know going doing volunteer work and like you know ended up starting a nonprofit. um were you married at the time we got married like we were together and then we got married like two years after we moved and, and around
2: how old were you when you left uh, 30 30 yeah so you're 30 years old you feel like you've sort of retired already <laughs> um what did you think the rest of your life was going to look like
1: you know what? It's funny. I, I, I think that I thought I was going to be doing sort of like service work, whether it was nonprofit or volunteer stuff, sort of from then on, you know, but I didn't really know, you know, I was, I was sort of dumb, you know, and, and I, you know, I remember cause I was just starting to make serious money, but I, it wasn't like I had built a fortune. And right. so, I mean, I had built a fortune for most of the world, but you know, you know, not not for sort of West Los Angeles basically. And I remember my wife when we had our first kid and I had been just like doing a nonprofit that I started that was like going well, but I also wasn't even paying myself a salary. We'll talk about that
0: nonprofit in a bit.
1: And, And I was like, I was like, and she was like, you know, you can't, you can't not work forever. Like we can't, you know, gotta do this. And I was like, that was my sort of wake up call where I was oh, yeah. like, oh yeah. I've got I, to, I that's literally career. what I was
0: going to ask you was like, what did she say? Cause after you're married, it's, you're, you're pretty much wrong all the time.
1: <laughs> well, I mean. she, I mean, she looked, she was, she loved that I left wall street. Right. Like she was like, right. you know, follow your passion, right. do whatever you, you know, makers, you know, mark in the world basically. But then I, you know, I think when in the end, like I went too, way too sort of like I'm going to be Jesus, basically. Right,
0: right. Yeah. So talk to us about Feast. It's the nonprofit you started here in LA. Why, well, before you talk about that, what what was your mindset like before you even started this?
1: All I all I wanted to do was sort of like find a way to sort of like help the world in some way. Like I, I think I was like, you know, I'd been sort of not working for two years, and I was getting like. I didn't like the feeling of being sort of like out of the mix basically. And so I knew I wanted to sort of get back into something and I wanted to sort of, you know, do something that, and I was reading like father Greg Boyle's books, um, about, you know, homeboy industries. And Mm. I was like, that's a guy he, he (laughs) was my idol at the time. And he still is my idol in a lot of ways, but you know, my desire for what my life is going to look like is not, you know, what his looks like, but you know, that's what I was thinking.
2: What, what drew you to that? Because I'm curious, I know, you know, we hear about folks who go and make a bunch of money in the real world and then realize that money doesn't bring happiness and they're lacking this sort of fulfillment. And then they turn to philanthropy and just trying to find, you know, issues in the world that they can help solve. Was that similar for you or was there something more specific that drew you to that type of work? I mean,
1: you know, to be honest, at the time I was sort of like working with a therapist who was sort of like very sort of focused on like social justice stuff. So I I think I was like influenced a lot by her, um, But it was, Father Boyle specifically was different than sort of like philanthropy. Like he was a guy, if you ever read his books, he's like. What is it called? Or what what was of them called? His his first one and biggest one is called Tattoos on the Heart. And the guy is like. He he is just pure love and and it's almost like there's a, there's a character in, I think it's either the brothers Karamazov or war and peace. I think it's brothers Karamazov, a guy named Alyosha. And he is also that he is like this character that, and and I sort of, there, there was something, I actually still believe this in some way that, that that is sort of the right way or the way that you know, the, the sort of like highest level of consciousness in some sense is just that we all sort of are love really. And that he, he is just a guy who is so in touch with that, that that's how he operates his life. And so I saw that and just the amount of sort of like love he brought to the world. And I wanted to do that. Hmm.
0: So you start Feast. So I start
1: Feast. That? And so, so Feast was like, basically it, you know, it's funny, like. It's funny now how much I've learned about food and how little I knew at the time. Like all Feast was, was that, you know, I, my wife and I sat down and started watching these Netflix food documentaries. Like which ones? Forks over knives, food ink. Um, but the, the big one that was nobody's seen, but that was really impactful was this thing called a place at the table. And it was the first time somebody sort of I had heard this argument about the intersection of food and poverty mm. and you know neighborhoods called food deserts, mm-hmm. and you know kids born in that neighborhood are going to live you know mm. ten years less than kids born in sort of more affluent neighborhoods and because they didn't have access to healthy food and I actually didn't even know why at the time that you know I only learned ten years later, six years later, why that was so interesting to me but There was just something about this idea that it was like healthy food should be a human right and it's now a luxury product. And if you think about it now, actually, it's very much has to do with that Wall Street career I was living Mm -hmm. because it was like. You're out of touch. Yeah, well, more so that like, you know, one of the things I was pissed off about Wall Street was how it was all about me, me, me and making money and da, 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 even though you were already the richest sort of people in the world. And what about all the people that didn't sort of have that same privilege and the food was just the most sort of like visceral example of that, which is like, you know, you have all these people sort of eating organic and eating da da da. And then you have neighborhoods where you literally can't get fresh food. Right. And that's messed up.
0: Right. And I know you, I can't remember when it was you were talking about something about like, or somebody I remember saying like a burger costs like five bucks, but like a nice salad costs like 15 to 20 bucks, which is, I mean, kind of is true. Like when we were at USC, there was this like food concept called seeds. And like you'd have like a Southwest chicken salad, it's like nineteen dollars, and you're just like I'm a, I'm a student who's like
2: <laughs> paying like hundreds of thousands of dollars, and yeah. I have to pay like an, a premium on food. it right. and same it's time. good. Like, like you want to have that double salad. Fucked. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you know what's funny, by the way, is like it. It took me six years probably to understand the answer for like why that is. Mm-hmm. And, but, but I, I honestly think that I understand the answer to that better than most people, better than almost anybody in the world. Right. And like, and nobody knows, like people, you know, for you guys, like, do you know why?
0: Why there are food deserts and why food and poverty but are why related? Why salad
1: or? costs 15 bucks and a burger costs six bucks.
0: As well, I mean, my assumption would be that, you know, with a salad, everything's pretty much like has to be freshly grown. It's organic. It's from like farm to table type thing. Whereas like all the other stuff is processed and manufactured, so you know it's cheaper to manufacture it at that speed as opposed to grow lettuce. Like you can't speed up the growth. I'm gonna of go out on a
2: limb and say there's no logic behind it. It just is. No, it's and it's just a market driven. You're
0: close. <laughs> you're
1: close to right, and you're actually basically right. But 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 there is logic to But it's not the key thing. Is that it's not the ingredient cost.
2: Right. Because that's where I, my
1: mind. Would it's go the first, labor it? cost. That's right. It's it's the labor and the rent and all the things because you have to take this perishable product and make it at the last minute instead of the whole sort of supply chain for burgers and fries, which is like, if you imagine like what the back of a McDonald's looks like, it's not, you know, fresh potatoes that they're chopping. It's like bags of frozen fries. Right. That they're then just refrying. Right. right. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, and then everything is like that, like soda, buns, frozen meat, like the only thing that's perishable is like iceberg lettuce, which is not even really perishable.
0: And Sam, another right. thing that, uh, we had read about probably a little over a year ago. And I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this later on too, is that. In these lower income communities and, you know, where you see a lot more poverty, you see a lot more McDonald's and like churches, chicken and all these things that's honestly like sometimes I haven't even heard of or seen is that they don't have access to credit, right? And a lot of these new food concepts or even like new tech companies, they all run on credit card. Like you, it's on the assumption that you have a credit card to use their services, whereas those folks can't even afford You know, to pay for their house, nonetheless, have credit to buy anything. So, if you're a company that wants to operate and be profitable, because that's the whole goal is to be profitable, frankly, why would you go to those areas? You can't service those people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that makes sense. And there's there's so many things sort of around that. For example, like you know, folks in underserved areas are so tight on money that they can't afford. The thing that happens in a lot of affluent kitchens, which is that you're, you buy a bunch of vegetables and you don't use it and you throw it out. Right. So they'll buy, you know, a lot of processed food that they know sort of won't go bad. But the thing about your point is that it's, I think it's less about the credit and it's more about the things that we were talking about, the structure of perishable food, meaning that. You cannot, in order to be a viable business in an underserved neighborhood, you've got to be able to sell a meal for 6 or $7 at the most. And with the way that sort of standard restaurants are structured, if you're going to serve a salad, you can't do that and it's not because the ingredients cost too much, it's because the labor and the, and the real estate cost too much.
0: So before we go into every table, which is kind of the solution to this problem that you had identified, what was Feast and what did you do there? So Feast was was
1: basically like our my sort of first attempt at sort of helping to solve this problem. And so what we did was we basically said, okay, let's identify the things that people need in order to sort of like have access and sort of adopt a healthier eating lifestyle in the midst of a difficult environment. And so we structured this program that included, you know, free fresh fruits and vegetables nutrition education, cooking skills. But, you know, one of the things that I was sort of, I am proud about with Feast is that, you know, I'd done so much reading about sort of philanthropy and about um, things like, even things like Native American healing circles and that, that I knew that the last thing these neighborhoods needed was some sort of white guy or white expert coming in and being like, here is how you should eat, basically. Yeah. And so what we did is we structured it as basically, first of all, service in some sense that we're just providing this. But also we structured it as basically like community groups so that 10 moms would meet at a time and sort of be led. The, the meetings would be led by a person from that community sort of helping people sort of figure it out together without some outside expert coming in and sort of teaching it. And so what happened is that we, we created these groups so that there was a lot of time for each person in the group to share. And that was the sort of magic and it continues to be, which is that w- what you have when you have, you know, 10 people and especially people that are, you know, so sort of under stress and duress in their life. But this would, this actually happens with everybody is when you start talking about your relationship with food, you're also talking about your relationship with family and shame and embarrassment and control and addiction. And so, you know, we would start running these groups and pretty soon somebody would start sharing and they would cry and then somebody else would cry. And then the whole group would be crying basically. And you had this sort of, you know, ability to create this network of support amongst people that, you know, continues to be incredibly powerful. So, you know, that, that's what we started learning with Feast. And I was running these groups in South LA, you know, per capita income, $13,000 a year and, you know, getting to know sort of the people in these neighborhoods. And that was sort of what led to every table basically is because, you know, I started, you know, getting these, these, these answers that, you know, it wasn't that folks just wanted burgers and fries, like they wanted sort of fresh, healthy food. Cause, you know, everybody wants that. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like
2: I'm curious though so with feast, did you go the nonprofit route because you felt that this issue of accessibility to a healthier, like, you know, food lifestyle um was only a you were only able to do that through a nonprofit model and not a traditional business model. I just,
1: if you remember sort of where I was about being sort of like moralistic and anti wall street, I thought the only way you could do good in the world was by starting a nonprofit.
2: And, and so it wasn't even And did even a you question. learn otherwise? Like after hundred percent. Like, in yeah.
1: fact, like, you know, what I found is that nonprofits are, and I don't mean to take anything away from like all the great people working for foundations and all the great philanthropy and especially all the incredible people working in nonprofits, but there is something sort of structurally amiss in that program. Or we that were talking structure. about this
2: literally like a few days ago, and I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it because. You know, I think a lot of people think that way, thinking, you know, if I want to do good in the world, I have to start a nonprofit. Otherwise, people are going to think I'm just greedy and I'm doing That's it for right. myself.
1: That's right, and b- and by the but way, that is gaze. an yeah. issue. Yeah, and like that, that is like, you know, a lot of the philanthropists like would insist that you're a nonprofit so that you're not sort of taking money. But that was the key thing to understand is that in order to do good in the world using a nonprofit structure, you basically had to get permission from the philanthropists that are funding you. And that was the thing that was broken about it was, first of all, you you were always operating at the behest of these wealthy philanthropists that, you know, if you can imagine my sort of resentment, I had (laughs) left Wall Street to get away from these folks and now my whole Job at every t- or at at feast was to make them happy right. and one thing I knew is that you know w- what happens when you create a lot of wealth and especially on Wall Street is you become first of all very out of touch of what's sort of like really happening and very certain of how smart you are mm-hmm. and I saw it so many times, and so you would have these philanthropists who who basically didn't have any understanding of what was sort of going on on the street,
2: right? Certain
1: that they had the answer to all and, these. And folks to that problems. point,
2: when we talk about the greed aspect, right, and and how you know people often think a nonprofit is a lot better for the world, um, from a yeah from that perspective than a business. But it's funny because one of the biggest differences is the fact that someone who's investing in it can deduct it from their taxes, right? The tax tax deductibility aspect versus. Donate. Well, donate. Yeah, versus an investment that uh, creates equity that if that business was to sell. But just giving in a donation and deducting it on your taxes that year doesn't necessarily mean that you've made an impact with your donation. But building equity and actually earning something for your investment in a traditional business over a long period of time means that that business has made an impact to be successful for you to get your money back, right? So well, you're taking a of, risk. You're taking it is there's, there's a risk the level. The donation of course. is
0: not a risk, it's a benefit to you most of the time up to a certain point. And you don't really care what they do with that money. I mean, I'm speaking generally, but like, well, that's what I'm saying. It's, just it's kind of
2: broken in that sense where that money doesn't necessarily have to make an impact for you as the person who's donating/slash investing to get some sort of benefit of it.
1: It's also like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, squeezing, you know, blood from a stone basically where, you know, it, it is so much easier to convince a wealthy person to invest a million dollars. If you promise that you're going to create that, turn that into 10 million, than it is to, to convince that same person to donate $25,000 and just have it disappear. Mm-hmm. And it it's not that beneficial to them. No. It's just it is just less it, you know it's basically like you know 60 percent 40 percent better than if they just gave that money to somebody else because they save a little bit of taxes
2: right but all all, all those other things equal like the business in and of itself would operate the same way regardless of how it's well
1: the the problem is i think it's actually your your point is the right one which is that the the very nature of a business is yes you have to please those investors when you first start but the ultimate definition is are you pleasing your customers mm-hmm. and are they whereas a nonprofit is never like that you're mm-hmm. always pleasing the donors and by reporting how much you're helping the customers mm-hmm. but really at the end of the day who's important for a nonprofit right. is the donor which is is the big problem model. with all of it yeah it's a broken it, it is not a model it is mm-hmm. it is certainly not a model that is structured to change The, 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 the social structure.
2: I'm curious though, what, by what you know, like of, of, I mean, like based on what you know, how would you, if you were to fix the model, um, would you even try to fix it? Or do you think that it's, well, I, so, so look, I, you
1: know, sometimes I feel like I throw stones without having like a good (laughs) answer. So that's, and I think that's a good question. And, and what I do want to say is like, there is a lot of, first of all, there's amazing nonprofits, right? Period. Full stop but there's also a lot of stuff that nonprofits do that are just not, you couldn't do with the business, right. you know, you know, soup kitchens, et cetera. Um, you know, I got to think of sort of
0: more. And so employing certain people that might not be able to work for you because of employment and labor laws Yeah, can uh, volunteer. It's funny
2: because before we did this, we were talking about, um, our friend, Robert Ager, mutual friend who we had on the show. Um, he, he was the founder of LA kitchen and, um, with uh, Jose Andres and he's done a lot of great work in this area. And I think one of the things he talked about during our conversation was that a lot of these issues people think has to be through solved through nonprofits, but it could be solved through just a business. Um, and the future of every business is like, has to have some sort of philanthropic arm or some sort of giving back model um, for it to succeed because otherwise it's like self-serving in a sense. But
0: Sam, I will say from the nonprofit angle, From what I've kind of experienced with, you know, my experience with nonprofits is you have greater access to some of those wealthier individuals initially, just because, you know, of that good component that you're doing a social good, like the same people that, you know, perhaps you and Pat and I can reach through the founder hour, which is nothing. It's not a nonprofit. It's not a for-profit. It's just a project. We can't reach those same people if we were reaching out to them for a business purpose, right? If I wanted to service them for something or, you know, I needed something from them and I said, Hey, you know, are you willing to give $500 for this? They're going to be like, they're not going to even answer me. If I said, Hey, you know, I want to talk to you about your story. It's a no brainer, right? Same person, like you said. So how can we perhaps combine the good of a nonprofit or the, or the benefits of, and the access with, the for-profit component, you know, and obviously we call that social entrepreneurship, but in your experience, how have you combined those two worlds? Well, I, I actually think that, I mean, we can talk about
1: this for hours, but like there's what you just said about, about, you know, businesses having a philanthropic arm, that's not what every table is. And I think that there's a lot of that is a little bit bullshit. And I mean like, you know, Tom's, I know you guys had, you know, Blake Mykowski mm-hmm. on and you know, what a great thing he's done in the world, but there was something that, you know, if you wonder why that it, five years ago, everybody was doing the, Hey, we're going to do right. a buy one, give one, one and, for one. Yeah. And and now you see it's not gone anywhere. Right. Yeah. And, and the reason for that is because it economically did not make sense. Right. right? In a capitalist market, the the whole idea that you can give away something the whole premise was basically that the brand lift that you got on that would would earn you more in goodwill and customer loyalty than the cost of giving that thing away which was never going to work because if if that really grew and grew and grew then the be- brand halo and benefit would just decrease over time right And so that, you know, what, what every table did and what I think that companies need to do is not do this. Here's my business and here's my philanthropic CSR arm. They need to combine them into the same thing. And that's the thing about every table is that the whole business model is the mission and is the impact. And so there's no, you know, this is our philanthropic arm. There's just our business
0: is philanthropic. But Sam, just to not even play devil's advocate, but just like, just to have this conversation, what you just said is a lot more challenging than doing the opposite, which is just you buy one, I'll give one away. Your model is you have to change the entire system, right? Which people don't want to put that much thought into things. I mean, let's be real. Like even entrepreneurs, the great ones, some of them didn't put a lot of thought into their business. We've talked to 150 of them at this point. Okay. And I'm not going to call out anybody by name, but after the podcast, me and Powell talk and be like, how the fuck did this person make billions <laughs> of dollars with their company, right? Like, Pat and I are sitting down. We could come up with these insane ideas. We don't have that kind of access to capital, but it requires changing a system, right? Like, I, I, at one point, transparency, transparently speaking, we were talking about, like, upcycling and how we can make a business around that. Like, you know, But as and we went deep, like, three, four months, five months, six months. I don't know what it was. We, like, researched the hell out of it, talked to people. It required a systemic change, like uh, the entire system, the entire consumer behavior had to change for our idea to not only work, but to be profitable. And it's like, it's not that we gave up, but it was just like, there was nobody around us that was willing to make it work beyond just the two of us. And it just doesn't work that way. Right. But you could be like, yeah, we'll take your clothes, give you a new one back with like upcycled clothing.
1: What he, is that going to he, do?
0: Here's what I, my, my argument
1: sort of to you on this is that all of this. You know, if you look at the statistics of sort of venture capital, it's crazy, right? It's like all, you know, 80% of – and I don't know exactly what the stat is, but 80% of venture capital firms don't have a woman and don't have a person of color sort of investing, right? And so – You know, we, we already literally just talked about this is like, you do what you see. Right. And the people that end up in venture capital and the people that end up becoming entrepreneurs came from privileged backgrounds almost by definition. And so the problems that they are seeing and trying to solve are the problems of the affluent. Right. But there, the, every table, you know, if you think about, you know, every table, we didn't have to do anything crazy. (laughs) Really? What we had to do was fig- was basically vertically integrate a system that had been horizontally integrated, but if you think about the technology that we utilize, like now we're getting into high-tech stuff, right. but you literally could have made this
0: business 20 years ago. Right. Well, before you keep going on, let's explain to people what Every Table is, right? And talk to us about, I know, because you did Feast for what, four or five years?
1: I, I did it for three years before
0: starting Every Table. Right. So how did you even come up with the idea of what Every Table was going to be?
1: So it, it was basically like I was saying, talking to these you know folks in South right. LA and understanding you know, two things that there was desire for fresh, healthy food, but in order to make it work, you had to sell that food for the same price that fast food sold it for. So how could you figure out how to do that? And the, the answer was pretty simple. And it's basically, and this is, it's exactly what we were talking about. The biggest food companies in the world are CPG companies and fast food companies. And the reason they're the biggest is because they sell food the cheapest so that most people can buy it. And the way they sell the food the cheapest is by employing the same structure in both those. And CPG is basically chips, candy bar, you know, ice cream, cereal, everything you find in the middle of a grocery store. And if you'll notice, in the middle of a grocery store is like 80% of the things for sale. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Is it because people love processed stuff? No, it's because it's the best business. And the reason it's the best business is because it's not perishable. So, you know, imagine the maker of corn pop cereal in the world is they've got a single factory where they're producing all the corn pops, tens of thousands of boxes a day. And that's a incredibly efficient plant. i they've scaled
0: the shit out of it. They
1: automated it, no doubt. Incredible, right? And then they take those boxes and they send them all around the country. And they don't have to go fast because they're not worried about perishability. They sit on a retailer's shelves, on a grocery store's shelves. And for months- right? Because they never go bad. And because of the efficiency of that, because there's no spoilage, incredible efficiency of centralized production, the prices are really low. And to your point, that's exactly what fast food is too, which is that you feel like it's a restaurant, but really it's the end of a CPG supply chain where at a fast food restaurant, all they're doing is taking pre-processed industrial made products and then either frying them or microwaving them and then serving them to you. And so when you think about a restaurant, like a sweet green, for example, it's almost the complete opposite, where if you think about the ingredients for a sweet green, they come into the city of Los Angeles and then they are spread to all the sweet greens and all the other restaurants. and then at that restaurant, they're sort of, you know, prepared and then sold to consumers. And so, if you start thinking about a restaurant as instead like a food production factory, it's actually a terribly terribly inefficient food production mm-hmm. factory right instead of you know mcdonalds which has one single plant making all the buns in the world you have 20 sweet greens in los angeles making all the sweet green salads mm-hmm. right and so every table basically said how can we take the theory of the cpg and fast food guys but do it with perishable food. And the answer is you actually can't, right? You can't make a salad in Los Angeles and then send it to New York mm-hmm. because it'll go bad. But what you can do is do it on a regional level where in any given region, and we're in one right now, you have a single central kitchen where you're making all of this food. And as soon as it's done, there's this click, you know, ticking clock that starts which for us is basically like two days. Once we make it, we've got to sell it within two days. But in order to do that, we have, you know, our own sort of logistics system, refrigerated delivery vans that take the food from when we've made it to our stores or to our smart fridges, which are basically like healthy vending machines or to customers doorstep through our subscription delivery business. But because of that chain of, you know, if you think about all we're doing is we're getting food from a farm to a central kitchen cooking it and then sending it to a customer. We've now made the sort of fresh food structure much more like the CPG and fast food structure so it's cheaper by 50%
2: than sweet. You mentioned meat. this could have been done 20 years ago. Why do you think it hadn't been done 20 years ago?
1: I think it's sort of what I was saying, which yeah. is that you know, there's so much focus by entrepreneurs on solving the problem of the affluent and there was very little focus on solving problems for people that didn't have a lot of money, the so called bottom of the pyramid. But my belief, and this goes through our conversation about social enterprise, is that there are tons of businesses that can work if you get entrepreneurs who have capital behind them to focus on those areas. But so many entrepreneurs are, you know, Princeton lacrosse players that are in their bubble, you know, trying to make a well, better. Because they
2: think, you know, And I don't want to throw any companies under the bus, but like just taking an example, like Peloton, for example, right? It's like an expensive piece of equipment that if they didn't cater to the folks who have that money to afford it, then they didn't have a business because their margins are just not going to work.
1: That's right. You know, so uh, with yeah, and that has been the history: is like, hey, make stuff for the luxury people over time, and then over time, figure Mm -hmm. out how to make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, so it gets down there. Yeah. But every table did the opposite, which is to focus on the bottom of the market first, and that's the thing. You know what, what's interesting about every table, and we'll see sort of how how we do because you know we started, and in our first couple of years, we 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 opened our first store and it did well, and then we opened four more stores and they all tanked basically, and then we spent just years sort of like grinding and like you know being on the edge of not getting enough money and did it, but just working to see if we could build this model. That would sell healthy food in underserved neighborhoods for lower than fast food prices profitably. And it took us years to get it and we got it. And now we're selling food for six bucks, making 20, 25% profit margins at the store level, which is, as far as I'm concerned, sort of the holy grail in all of food. Mm -hmm. And you know how many competitors we have? Zero. Zero. And like not even anybody idea sort of started. They, they just were, were sort of off the radar basically. But
0: why is that? I mean, now that people are, they're going to hear your story right now, right? You know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are going to hear your story. Can they go do the same thing?
1: They sure could. I mean, the, the, the reason that it's difficult and the reason that like people hadn't done it before is you have to do a lot of things right to make it work. So if you think about like a restaurant, like everybody knows how to start a restaurant. You know, you, you build the kitchen, you, you take a menu and you have cooks there and then you sell the food. It's great. But for, for what we have to do, you have to build direct relationships with farms and figure out the logistics of getting, you know, food to the central kitchen. And then at the central kitchen, you have to create basically, you know uh, – Restaurant style cooking, but in the structure of a fresh food manufacturing plant, right? right? Which is a very, very difficult skill set. And then you've got to do the logistics of last mile delivery from that. And then for us, what we've done is created multiple different business channels to sell the same food. So we're selling through our stores, our smart fridges, our D C, you know, subscription mm-hmm. delivery and our institutional services business, which basically leverages our operational and logistical capabilities to meet the needs of, you know, government and hospital and large corporations. Um, but that, all of that, you had to do a lot basically. Right. To how did to you
0: know how to do this? I mean, you're a guy that was like, you know, Wall Street, you know you're not, you're not a hospitality guy. You're not a operations guy. Like you're not any of these guys that require whatever this business requires. Like, was it just making sure you had the right team around you or you were just. No, I mean, I would
1: say like I failed for the first like two years learning how to run a company and learning everything there was to know about food and like you know, it's funny, it's like, thank God for those Wall Street investors that I knew who sort of gave us enough money to sort of start, you know, a seed round and give us enough time to sort of work on this hard problem. Um, So I, I think the benefit in some level is like, first of all, I didn't know anything about food. And so there was a terrible learning curve that, you know, cost us a lot of money, but it was also that I had sort of beginner mind whatever and so i could look at the problem in a way that most food people would have thought was crazy right right right. right.
2: yeah it's interesting this bottom of the pyramid thing and and i want to encourage like people who are listening to think that way if they're kind of sort of thinking about businesses because there's uh, this pyramid obviously at the bottom of the pyramid is the largest part of the pyramid so there's the largest amount of people who are not just underserved, but not served at all. And like one of the examples is we had the founder of Square, um, not Jack Dorsey, but um, uh, Jim, Jim McKelvey, McKelvey who uh, created the Square Reader. And he talks about in his book, he wrote the book, uh, The Innovation Stack, how they cr- essentially created the bottom of the pyramid because there were all these small, uh, and small businesses that didn't have access to merchant solutions because those merchants didn't want to work with them. And then another group of people
0: that didn't even exist yet Which were the the future entrepreneurs.
2: Future small business uh, owners um, that we're going to... So it's just, you know, and then they obviously became Square, which is a multi-billion dollar company. So it's definitely like an interesting way of, you know, we hear about in entrepreneurship classes in school, how to think about business ideas, right? Find a a pain that you're dealing with or the world is dealing dealing with. Um, But uh, we don't learn that there's a whole group of people in, in every industry that are not even in that industry because that solution doesn't exist for them to get in there. hundred percent. You know,
1: And and I, I, what I would encourage for the sort of systemic change around that is, you know, the people that invest in venture capital firms invest in the, you know, fund managers of color who have had a heck of a time sort of breaking into venture capital, but see the problems that, you know, maybe your your kid from Wharton, you know, uh, who grew up in Greenwich, is not sort of seeing and invest in those fund managers who can then invest in those talented mm-hmm. entrepreneurs who are solving problems for their community that are just not even on the radar of the people right. in Santa Monica.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm curious a little bit about
0: the, the the farming aspect of all this stuff. You know, I, I remember when we were going back and forth with your team about scheduling even this podcast. Some folks were out in D.C. Right. Is that, is the DC office more concer- concerned about lobbying efforts? I mean, like I'm curious about the whole farming and then how, you know, working with lobby groups perhaps.
1: I, I don't think there was, I, I think, oh, we had a, a, a lawyer is in DC, but that, that's got not, we don't have a DC it. office. Um, but the, but the farming stuff is really interesting. I mean, and I could take you sort of down a rabbit hole of it, but it's, it, I'm starting to understand like basically, what what every table is doing is it's not a an innovative restaurant company. It is literally a a food system, the most efficient food system you can build that takes food right from the farm and makes fresh perishable food, and then gets it to customers at the lowest possible price. And so, if you think about if you think about like why the food system is the way it is, it's all sort of what we were saying is like our food system has been created based on what is the best business. And the best business is 100% shelf-stable processed food. And now the entire world is getting sick because of that system. And so what Every Table is doing is creating the next system, which is how do you create the most efficient system but with fresh, perishable food? And what that's going to look like in Los Angeles is, you know, 400 restaurants, 10,000 smart fridges, you know, 50,000 subscription delivery customers, 250 institutional services customers. And that will be like a $300 million business in Los Angeles. Alone. Alone, And that's when – first of all, you know – versus the the food system that's a a drop mm-hmm. in the yeah. bucket right scaled, so it's not that's but not it, scaled yet but but it's big and it's and and with if we are doing 300 million dollar businesses we are going to have direct relationships with farms that have mm-hmm. material impact right. on those farms and so then we can encourage the kind of regenerative agriculture you know pro soil health pro animal treatment um things that Um, you know, are, are, are part of sort of a more resilient sort of food system future than what we currently have, which is basically, you know, all the Midwest and all of Iowa making soy and corn, Mm -hmm. destroying the soil so that they can pump out all this stuff that is basically used in the processed food
2: products. No, I'm curious, you know, we're, we're recording this, what is it like October 17th, 2020. So we're like sort of, um, what is it? eight months, nine months into this whole coronavirus pandemic. Um, And I'm curious how this whole situation has affected not only your business, but also your specific space that you're in. Um, And how, how do you see it sort of changing from here?
1: Well, you know, in, we have, so, so every table has done very well in this. Like we, you know, our, our revenues are up, it'll be up something like five or six times from the year before. Um, but there's actually an interesting reason for that. And, and the reason is sort of what I talked to you about, which is, you know, not only did we have the capacity to produce healthy food at scale, but we also had the logistical capability to then take that food to wherever customers were. And so if you think about the sort of like emergency food relief that was needed, most of the emergency food relief infrastructure is things like soup kitchens and food banks where you have to get people to come to that place. But the problem with that during coronavirus is you had a lot of sort of old, infirm, disabled people that it was first of all very dangerous for them to leave the house, and in a lot of cases they couldn't. And so every table was able to sort of secure these massive contracts because of our logistical capabilities to take the food to the homes of low-income seniors and to do food service for you know all the hotels that were getting you know filled with people off of the streets to keep them safe. And every table had the ability to not only make meals for at the beginning, we were charging four dollars and fifty cents a meal, like mind-blowing, and not making any profit off of it. Um, but but doing our sort of service and doing our part to sort of meet the need. And then we've been able to sort of like grow that business over time so that it's profitable. Yeah. But for us, it's like I, I do think it sort of like heralds a an important change for the future where you know, restaurants. Th- this whole sort of like restaurants making food and then giving it to a DoorDash driver and taking it to person. This is actually a great example of a business that is literally never going to work for the bottom of the pyramid. Like there is just no way that you can have 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 food delivered to an individual person and and not have it cost twenty dollars.
2: Literally talking about this with my girlfriend last night was she was saying like. W- I want to. She's just like she works in Century City. She's like, I want to order a salad. It costs me twenty five dollars by the time it gets to my door. Like this isn't sustainable. And like, what about all the people that can't afford to do this every day? Like, I mean, what, she's, what she's in Century
1: City. Think about it, yeah. Watts. Right. It's a, you know. I know. I know. That's exactly. And, so, and by the way, so so and and that's why every table's model is actually so powerful. Is that. You know, imagine her office. What we'll have in her office is a smart refrigerator, basically like a healthy vending machine, where she'll walk up, she'll swipe her credit card, open her refrigerator, pull out exactly whatever meal she wants, and it will cost her seven bucks. Instead of ordering that twenty-five dollars,
2: and is that on the subscription model or no? Is that so
1: we've just- got we've basically got you know three different sort of retail businesses. One is opening our actual restaurants, which mm-hmm. are like you know five hundred to a thousand square feet. They'll do like a million dollars in sales a year, um, and you, it's basically like grab and go, like a pre manger I don't know if you've mm-hmm. been there in New York, but it's like you walk in, there's you know beautiful refrigerators full of delicious, fresh prepared meals, and you grab whatever you want. If it's a hot meal, we'll heat it up. For you and then you take it and go. And a lot of people go there as a restaurant, but they'll also treat it like a store and go and buy, you know, five to 10 meals at a time and take it home. And then we have this smart refrigerator business where we basically go to anywhere there's people. So uh, offices, gyms, apartment buildings, hospitals, you know, police stations, jury rooms, Amazon fulfillment centers, bus stations. And we basically put this, basically a healthy vending machine So that when people want to eat, they just swipe and grab. And because we have this cold chain logistics, and because we're we don't have to, you know, take an individual meal to a single person, but because we're doing, you know, dropping 30 meals in one of those smart fridges. The economics for us are so much better and that we can pass those savings on to our customers so you can get this incredibly delicious, fresh, healthy meal mm-hmm. for $7 without leaving your office in Century City, whereas your other alternative was ordering DoorDash and paying 25 or walking to the Sweetgreen and paying $17 for yourself. Right.
2: And how do you go about figuring – or like – um, and by the way, I have a ton of respect for sweet green. So I want to
1: start saying that I, I, yeah. I talk about them, but they, the reason that I talk about them is because they have done what nobody else in the world has done, which has created like a national brand around fresh, healthy, perishable food. Nope. And so, you know, they get criticized for being too expensive, but there's no way that they could do it cheaper. Basically.
2: Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, how, how do you go about figuring out, um, what meals you offer?
1: Well, we I mean we have a uh, you know huge R and D team and but but the, the the answer to your question is really we, we so you know to, to, to flesh out more of the every table model, we also that we haven't talked about is we have this variable pricing structure. So that when we open a store in Brentwood, super affluent neighborhood, we'll charge seven, eight dollars for a meal, which is incredibly low. Right. But when we open a store in Compton, we'll charge Five or six dollars for that same exact meal. And the reason we do that, it's not charity because every store has to be profitable, but it is saying, look, there's real differences in what people can afford Mm. and what the competitive set is. So, seven to eight dollars is incredibly cheap for your Century City person. But in Compton that's still hard to afford for is a lot so of much people. much like
2: the gas station model perhaps a little bit. Well, I don't or?
1: know, do the gas station, but yeah, you're right, exactly. Yeah, no, it's gas like station. It is different
2: every city, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
1: And so we and we're just sort of like owning that in some sense. Um, but we, you know, the reason I wanted to explain that is when we think about our food, we have this challenge of how do you make food that is beloved in Compton and in Brentwood? Right. And basically what we sort of how we answered that is we said, you know, we think that we're going to focus on the Compton customer. And so what that meant is basically like creating meals that are authentic and oftentimes in partnership with folks from those neighborhoods. So, for example, our best-selling dish of all time is the Trap Kitchen chicken curry. And Trap I Kitchen, I that last
0: night. Did you? At the Resi drive-through <laughs> event. I love it. Yeah.
1: So. So. So so Trap Kitchen are these two chefs from Compton that started their own soul food delivery business out of their grandmother's kitchen that got to be so crazy popular that they got 300,000 Instagram followers and shut down by the government because you can't do that basically. But the food is incredible. And so we just went to them and partnered with them and they made a healthy version of – and it was already healthy basically of their chicken curry and, you know, we, we sent it out to to everybody. And what we found is that, you know, beloved by people in Compton, but it's also healthy and, you know, people in Brentwood and everybody has these varied tastes where they love to celebrate the cultures and cuisines of Los Angeles. So the, the thing that we did not do is say, hey, we're going to make, a, you know, something that would sell at – you know, what is it? What are the, what are the nice like Erewhon, you know, like, uh, you know, a, a grass and lemons lemon vinaigrette salad. Yeah. And now we're going to sell that in Compton. Right. We just went the opposite I way. I can
2: imagine there's like uh, this crazy, like logistical aspect to this, because like you have these different cities and perhaps different meals that cater to the people in those different cities, and you have to figure that out with from the bottom up in terms of like your ingredients and everything. So, um, and I, I think I read somewhere that um, I don't know if you've already implemented this or you're thinking about it, but like franchising, yeah, is that w- well, like what you well, guys are thinking? We in terms have, of-
1: I, I, it's one of the things that I'm most excited about in the world, and and the reason is it's sort of like the capstone. And it actually goes to your question about like how do you create a socially sort of – a social business where the mission is 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 the impact and, and is the business. And so franchising is a great way for restaurant businesses to expand because you basically – take capital from the franchisee and the risk to sort of building the store on them. Mm -hmm. The problem with franchising from our perspective is that like so many other businesses, whether it's wall street or tech, um, is that it's geared towards people who have access to capital or who have accumulated capital over time, which means that historically marginalized groups like black people Um, who are suffering from the racial wealth gap because of historic redlining and all sort of structural racism have not been able to accumulate those capital. And so what we've done is we've gone, and this is like, I've talked shit about philanthropists, but now I actually love them. We've gone to some of the biggest foundations in the country, the Kellogg Foundation, the Annenberg Foundation, California Wellness Foundation, Dignity Health Foundation, and soon many, many more. And we've said, look- Step up, Bill Gates. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and said, look, we we have what we, we think is the opportunity of a lifetime for you, which is we know you care about spreading healthy food access around the country, and we also know that you care about closing the racial wealth gap and empowering entrepreneurs of color, so why don't you loan us money – which we can then find talented entrepreneurs of color from historically marginalized communities and, you know, there's a ton of talent and train them and then once they're ready for it, loan them the money to start their own franchises. And so for us, it's like, you know, it's a great source of capital to get sort of foundation capital. It's great for the foundations because, you know, in many cases, they're they're using a, a financing structure called a program related investment, which means that They, they, they invest the money into us, but it's still tax deductible for them. They get the money back and then they can either reloan it out to us or anybody else or then donate that money. And so it almost like leverages their sort of philanthropic giving and then is going to create, you know. Hundreds of stores in Los Angeles and tens of thousands of stores across the country that are owned by entrepreneurs who ordinarily would, who are so talented, but wouldn't have access to, to that kind of capital.
2: And is there, are there any examples of this in other sort of areas that the, you? The deal?
1: only sort of close example, and one of our board members, is a guy named Kareem Webb from, from Fourth Movement, who's deeply involved in this, but the only, only example is what's happening in cannabis, which basically in cannabis, you know, if you think about what happened, there's all these people of color in jail for the last 30 mm-hmm. years, and now all of a sudden they're legalizing it, and all of a sudden you had this big rush by white entrepreneurs who had <laughs> access to capital into this space, right. and so you know, fortunately, incredibly innovative politicians, especially in Los Angeles, like Marquise Harris Dawson, mm-hmm. um, the city councilman, said, no, 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 no. If, if people are going to be making money from this, the people who should be making the money from this are people who have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. And so for all the licenses that they're giving out for cannabis in Los Angeles, the vast majority are going to social equity candidates – who, you know, are from neighborhoods that have been disproportionate. And in in a lot of cases, they're actually candidates who themselves have suffered from the war on drugs, whether they were, you know, incarcerated for a low-level marijuana offense or something. And these are the people that they're giving licenses
0: to own these cannabis retail shops. Sam, do you see Every Table being, you know, the next McDonald's? Honestly, like on a level, and and I say that in the sense of being a global, provider of food, just, you know, at, at that level of scale.
1: It's a, it's actually a good question in so far as the question about global and McDonald's really, you know, their history was, was really fascinating where they were in, in America. There was actually pretty intense competition amongst fast food that McDonald's basically won because it was you know, the dominant and best operator. But when they started expanding internationally, they got their suppliers to sort of set up plans to help them expand internationally. And they were the only people doing it. So they really completely changed the global landscape. Like people hadn't seen fast food. They hadn't seen anything but sit-down restaurants. And then all of a sudden they were opening a a McDonald's in the middle of, you know, China or Amsterdam. And people were like, what the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. But it changed the world. And the reason I say that is – you know we may at some point have global ambitions but for me you know i'm an american from los angeles and one of the things that i sort of always thought about sort of american philanthropy was like you know there's so much stuff about savings you know folks in africa but we've got people five miles from here that are in real trouble so let's take care of what's in our backyard mm-hmm. and so for us like you know to your question we do plan to have this be the largest food company in the country, um, but whether it will be as big as McDonald's, I don't know, because will we go global? I don't, I don't know. We'll see.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we always have these conversations with folks on this podcast and also off the podcast about, you know, like how can how can you possibly create or how can business be the solution to a lot of these issues? Like you mentioned five miles down here, we still have homelessness. Like how is that possible in the year 2020? But this is a prime example of how we could work towards fixing that. And, and then at some point, you know, we, you expand and that'll come when it comes. Right. But it's like, and by, and by the way, I, right do, in front of our door. I do
1: want to say, and not to sort of like, you know, toot our horn, but the, the, the key thing that I would, if I could have any sort of entrepreneurs listening to this understand is that the reason that every table is a solution for this is 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 because instead of doing something where our main customer is the affluent customer and then we've got a little give back component for every, for somebody else, our main customer is everyone. Mm-hmm. And we've just created a system where because of that variable pricing model and because of the structure of our business, it is inclusive of everybody and that that Compton customer is frankly, more important to us, or at least as important as the, as the Century City customer. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference is like, can you really create a business where you're not trying to save anybody or not trying to help them? You're trying to create a great business for them that works for them as a customer instead of a recipient of philanthropy.
2: Right. So we're recording this on a Saturday morning, and I'm, I'm just curious, kind of like your day-to-day, are you just like full-time, just focused on every table right now, working all day, or do you have other things that you do? Do you like read or, I don't know, like how do you like stay inspired perhaps? Well,
1: so I, my, my life is pretty simple. Um, <laughs> I've got three kids, six, four, and one and sounds i sounds
0: like a real simple life but it, but it
1: is in some sense because <laughs> because that that's all i'm doing yeah. and so basically what my life looks like is i wake up at 4:30 and i work for at least an hour and a half till they wake up and then i spend an hour with them in the morning and then i'll you know hopefully get a workout and then go to work and work until like 5 5:30 but then get home by 5:30 and have and I'm I'm taking ubers so that I can work in the car so that I don't waste any time but but um yeah I'm I'm, I'm working in ubers so I don't waste any time that was a loud one. So I was I'm working in Uber, so I don't waste any time. But then I get home and I spend you know two two and a half hours with my kids every night, and then after that um, I'm so tired, but I'll read and like I've been reading a ton these days, and it really is like. It is a it is a secret sort of you know recipe like the amount you guys are probably readers but the amount that you can learn from that and by the way I have stages in my life where I do Netflix because I'm just so exhausted now yeah, my kids are sleeping sure, yeah. so I don't have to do that
2: but I cycle in and out of reading I, I I love reading but sometimes you get so I don't know, sometimes you just like realize like oh my god like I need to I need to like take a break for for hundred percent and that's
1: <laughs> when when my mind is too dead then I won't do it but. You know, I'm learning so much. And and now basically everything I read is about every table or about something, something that will impact my my business. And then I go to bed at like 8.30 or 9. And then I do it all over.
0: Do this, this is weird because I've had this feeling a few times in my life. But like, do you like ever have the feeling that you don't want to stop working because you just have this momentum and you don't want all to just kind of like, stop y- it? Like
1: here, my work job is way easier and more fun than my family job, which I love sort of too. But yeah, I mean, that that's the thing about, you know, being an entrepreneur in general, also being in sort of this, you know, one of the great things of being in the sort of like, you know, higher levels of the meritocracy or privilege, whatever you want to get, is that you get to have these jobs that are so entertaining mm-hmm.
0: and so fun that it, it isn't like work basically. Right. Mm-hmm. And do you think that you'll be doing every table for the rest of your life?
1: I mean, I hope so. Like I, I, you know, we have a plan to build the largest food company in the country and have it every table in every single community in the entire country. And that's a, that's a 20 year plan for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to see that last sort of flag planted and be like, you know, we did it. Like we, I do think that every table that, and that's the thing that I like, you know, I, I feel so lucky in my life because You know, every table is sort of, you know, it it is so sort of unique to sort of me and, and what sort of like I thought, you know, all of my sort of background helped me sort of lead up to this. And now I've got this job where, you know, if it works out in the way that I want it to can be the largest food company in the country right. can restructure the entire food system, can, you know, offer ownership potential for tens of thousands of entrepreneurs and, you know, For me, it's like that's like it's a life's work. That's for sure. I
2: know, you know. Oftentimes, when entrepreneurs start businesses, they reach a level where perhaps they're managing more people than they've ever managed, and there's just so many things happening in the business where you've never seen it. You're just learning along the way, Um, and it is a. I mean, it's a lonely game because when you're at the top, like of the company, and you're sort of looking at it in terms of. Every, you know, holistically, it's like, there's so many things that fall on your shoulders that people in specific functions might not feel if they're part of the business, maybe they will, but not as much. So I'm curious, like, do you have like mentors or people that you sort of rely on or like talk to anytime you need something? Or like So many.
1: And and it's one of the things that I've been sort of fortunate. I don't know how I got that sort of ability to... But like for example, my mentor on Wall Street, a guy named Michael Meyer, is actually one of the larger investors in every table, and you know is really like a father to me, and and I see him, you know, multiple times a year, um, and I call him for advice on sort of management specifically. And I've got board members now, Darvis Edgy, the CEO of Yoshinoya, who I call you know oftentimes on a weekly basis. There's a guy, there's a young entrepreneur named Drew Singh um, who started a food business in New York called Savory. He he basically. You know, it's not, it's not the biggest success story, but it kind of is because he started the same kind of business as Munchery, Sprig, Maple, all these guys. Mm-hmm. And his was the only one to survive because he sort of like figured out how to pivot sort of at the right moment. Um, but he's one of the smartest guys. I know I talk to him all the time and I'm, I'm always like, my job is to your point, just learning. And so I'm reading books and finding experts in things and just peppering them with questions sort of all the time.
2: Yeah.
0: I, I, just, I have so many more questions, but I know that if we sit down and talk, it'll be like a fifteen-hour podcast. <laughs> uh, because you know, we've talked again to almost soon it'll be two hundred people, I'm sure, within a couple months. Uh, but with every table, you're not just building a brand. I think the brand, and and this is a compliment. I mean, don't take it as an insult, but it's it's almost secondary to the actual system that you're creating, right? Like if this works out. There can be other restaurants and other brands who are simply just creating brands off of this system, right? Like it's almost like Salesforce, but you know, you're building a business on top of that. So to me, it's like you took something that in a system way is kind of unsexy, the system itself, but because it involves food it's sexy. And I think, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have told us like, you know, we really want to focus on the unsexy problems because a lot of people don't want to focus on that and that creates opportunity. But I think, you know, to entrepreneurs that are listening or people that might one day be entrepreneurs, it's like don't it's not all about the brand and what it looks like to other people. It's like what's inside that brand, right? Like it's what's inside that counts. It's really cliché, but If you could create a strong system, a strong backbone for whatever it is you're doing, not only will you grow, but it'll inspire others to kind of copy you. But if your mission is to do good and it's not just to make money, you shouldn't give a shit about the competition that comes your way. Like, you know, you're saying right now there's zero competitors down the line. There probably will be competition, but it's going to only help your mission even further. So, you know, I just, I just think that that's just phenomenal. I mean, again, we could sit here and talk for hours, but, you know, thank you for your time and your advice and, you know, just your commitment to what you're doing and that that, and that just provides such great levels of inspiration and motivation for all of us to go out there and think more and to challenge ourselves because if it's easy, it's probably already kind of happened, right? Like, you know, if you really want to go out and challenge yourself and educate yourself, a lot of people are always struggling with, I stop learning. Well, Go figure out something that's going to really scare the shit out of you. And, you know, you'll probably learn more and you'll probably end up doing something cool.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, guys. It was great talking to you.
0: Appreciate it. thanks. really
1: appreciate it. it. Thanks.